Today's reading will be from Numbers 13, verses 1 through 2 and 17 through 20. The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore to the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. This is the word of the, this is the word of the Bible. Sorry. Thank you for the reading, Stephanie. You, uh, the, the refrain we say, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Uh, I remember in seminary, when we would read really troubling passages, especially some of the Psalms where they end with, we should probably, you know, like the sort of like slaughtering of the innocence language. We would always wonder if we should say the word of the Lord because it felt wrong. So maybe in those sense, we, the word of the Bible could work just fine. Um, okay, friends, we have some teaching and preaching to do. And uh, it feels like we've already had quite a full service, but I've got a lot of things I want to share with you this morning. And uh, so let's buckle up and let's kind of stretch our minds and our bodies as we dive in together. For three weeks now, we have uh, taken a step away from our main preaching text. We were in the book of Numbers, beginning in uh, the season of Lent, so right after Ash Wednesday. And then we took a break on Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday, and then resurrection again last week when Pastor Lindsay shared with us. We are back in the book of Numbers today. And so I want to get us reoriented uh, so that we can make sure we're on the same page together. I feel like I need to say, uh, if you remember Town Losey, who was with us as an interim choir director, this is not him. But the staff has asked if I used his image for this, and no, I did not. Uh, okay, if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Numbers chapter 13, but I need to get us to chapter 13 since it's been a little bit since we've been in this book. So we're going to start with just the big story of how we got to where we are today. In this reading, uh, the people have gathered and they are at the edge of the promised land of Canaan, this space, uh, this land flowing with milk and honey. And they're about to go in. And so they head off on the spying mission, but we have to at least make sure we know how they got to this point in the story. In the book of Exodus, so um, the Torah or the books of Moses are the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We're in the book of Numbers, which is the fourth book. Each of them, are, they're telling the story of God's people in conversation with the world and with God. The book of Genesis is the beginning of this story told from the sort of first families, the families of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and how they end up in Egypt in slavery. Exodus is the story of their enslavement and then around chapter 13, 14 of Exodus into their freedom into the wilderness on the way to the promised land. So Exodus starts in Egypt, but it doesn't stay there. They leave. We just had uh, Lord's Supper, which in chapter 13 or so in Exodus is the Passover. And then they are headed to worship at Mount Sinai on their way to the promised land. So Exodus moves them all the way to Sinai, where they get the law, the Ten Commandments, and then they're supposed to head out. 
Now, where we left the book of Numbers three weeks ago is when they were like taking their first steps away from Sinai and toward the promised land. Sinai is the space where God is viscerally present in fire and in smoke and in terror and also in some comfort that God is near. Then God camps with the people after Sinai as they move throughout the wilderness toward the promised land. But just as a refresher, the first steps that they take, I'm not going to do it again because it hurt. Do you remember I like fell on my face? They trip right out of the gate. What they say on the way out, Moses' last words was they leave Sinai to head toward the promised land around chapter 10 in the book of Numbers is just how good it is. Moses keeps saying like this land is tove and God is tove and everything that's happening to us is super duper tove. It's all very, very good. Speech is blessed. It sounds like Genesis 1 when God creates everything and says that it's very good, very tove. But the story doesn't stay there. Of course it doesn't. Because in the midst of Moses' tove is all of the people's raw. Raw is the language for evil speech. And it overwhelms the narrative. And multiple times they cry out in doubt and disbelief and frustration. They don't have the food they want. They don't have the water they want. They don't have the, uh, the map that they hoped that they might have. And so... This evil speech moves into their midst, broken language. And so that ends up in a bunch of calamities early on in their journey from Sinai to the promised land. There's already tragedy. And what happens in their crying out is they yearn to go home. This is the speech that they use. Surely it was better in Egypt. Now, Egypt is a land of predictability, even if it is a land of despair. It's the land where there is no future, where every generation is like the last generation and all you live for is securing yourself against the possibility and the probability that destruction is right around the corner. And if you're a slave in Egypt, you have absolutely no freedom or autonomy of movement, of belief, or of worship. You are defined by someone else for someone else's purposes. It's not the most blessed way to live, but at least it's understandable. You know where you belong in the story. And so when they're in the wilderness and things start to get a little shaky and don't make as much sense, they crave return. Surely it was better for us back there. The story we told a few weeks ago is like the experiment they'll do sometimes uh, with like lab rats and mice where they'll put them in a cage and half the cage uh, will be electrified and the other half won't. But it depends on what kind of life the rat has lived up to this point, what the rat does at this point. Because there are some rats that they'll put in a cage that's all the time electrified. And it'll shock them at sometimes and it won't at others. And it's just kind of like maddening chaos. It's a terrible way to be a rat. I don't know a good way to be a rat. I think the good way to be a rat is to live in the basement of this building. Uh, based on the amount of food crumbs. Uh, but I'm assuming living on a cage that's intermittently electrified is not the best way to live. And uh, so they'll have like a group of rats that live in this way. Basically chronic abuse and stress. This is like the rats from Egypt. And then they'll have a group of rats over here that are, you know, given a normal sort of non-electrified life in another kind of cage. When they put the rats, the Egyptian rats, um, the chronically stressed and in pain rats in this cage, it's half and half. They leave the safety back toward the pain. 
there is this sense in which the trauma that we carry, that the Hebrew people carried, that these rats carry, that it makes us think that we, we deserve it. So even when there is good, we choose the bad. And especially when there is unknown, we choose the familiar. Surely it was better when we were in Egypt. Egypt is the land of no future. But sometimes an unknown future can be more terrifying than none at all. That gets us to our story today. They had this set of calamities, ended up in fire breaking out in the camp, ended up in a bunch of people dead and buried in the wilderness. One place is called where the fire broke out, and the other place is called where they had the great craving. And both of those are littered with signs of despair and destruction. But they still head toward the promised land. And so now here we are in Numbers 13. And at this point, the people are like 600,000 strong. It's not just a few people in the camp. It's a lot of people in the camp. And they get to the land, the edge of the land. And as a reminder, this is the land that God says is for you. This is your inheritance. And at some point you will be able to rest. To be still, to be calm, to find shade and enough food and a place to raise families. This is a land that flows with milk and honey. The language of milk and honey and abundance is the language of maternity. It's a motherly image that this land will cradle them will feed them, will nurse them, will grow them up. That's the promise. So they get to the edge of this landscape. And they decide that they should probably check it out. Now it says in the text here that, um, that God tells them to go spy out the land. But the story gets told over and over again. And in later tellings of the story in Deuteronomy and in other places, it says that the people wanted to go spy it out and God gives them permission. So it's a little bit ambiguous why they go to check it out and what the purpose of it is. But whatever happens, they decide they're going to send in some spies. And we are now in chapter 13. So they send basically the princes of Israel, the heads of the 12 tribes. These are the best of the best of the best people. The ones who got straight A's, who never made any mistakes. They're the ones who head into the land. And so off they go. And when they come back, they bring back with them signs of how amazing this land is. And this is where I want to ask you a question. Because I've had one thing in this story that's really stuck with me uh, that is totally meaningless. But I want to ask this question of you. Which is, they bring back these big grapes, Right? It takes two people to carry these grapes. That's how fertile this land is. Do you think that it was a bunch of normal-sized grapes on one very big branch or, like, a normal amount of grapes, but each grape was huge? You didn't think about that, did you? I would like to spend the rest of the sermon today figuring out if it's a bunch of little grapes or just a few huge grapes. So let's just do a quick vote. Audience participation. (laughs) Who is for one vine that's humongous with a bunch of normal-sized grapes? Show of hands. Oh, that feels like a majority already. Who's for really big grapes? (laughs) The the Nephilim, the, the giants, they get giant grapes. Okay. I'm going to report back. 
at some point, I'm going to go talk to some Hebrew Bible professors and they probably have figured this out. Whatever the case may be. Spies come back. They bring with them proof that the land is good and they bring with them a report that the land is good. But something happens with this, with the group of spies. Uh, there is a split in the camp. Ten of them are on one side of this split and the other two, Joshua and Caleb, end up on the other side of the conversation. I'll show you where it is in the text. The report. At the end of 40 days, they came back from spying out the land. They came to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the Israelites in the wilderness of Paran and Kadesh. They brought back word to them and all the congregation. They showed them the fruit and they told them. Now here's the report that's given. We came to the land which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. A lot of normal-sized grapes or a couple of really big grapes. There's no footnote. Yet the people who live in the land, 28, yet the people who live in the land are strong, and the towns are fortified and very large, and besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Malachites live in the land and the Geb, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live by the sea along the Jordan. Let me read that, the turn in the report. Yet the people who live in the land are strong, and the towns are fortified and very large, and besides, we saw giants there. This is the report that they give back, the ten on this side. But then Caleb quiets the people before Moses because if they heard this sort of report, you have to remember, like, they left Egypt. Egypt was all they knew. And not only did they leave Egypt, but when they moved through the sea, the Sea of Reeds, uh, that sea swallows Pharaoh and Pharaoh's armies. There's actually no Egypt to go back to in any meaningful way. They can't return because returning would be returning to destruction. And so they have left everything they've known, and they are at the edge of everything that's been promised. And their feet are just like right, you know, dangling off the cliff. And the spies, they're ready to go, and the spies say, like, hold on. Yeah, it's, it's everything we were promised, but also some stuff that we weren't told, which is that it's dangerous. Like, what are they going to do? Where are they going to go? There is nowhere to go behind them, and in front of them is the unknown that feels terrifying. So the people, they freak out. They must be freaking out because Caleb has to quiet them. Settle down, everybody. And Caleb gives his report. So now we're on this side of the group. Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with them said this, we are not able to go against these people, for they are stronger than we. So they brought the Israelites a bad report of the land. There's that language of Ra again. They brought a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land that we've gone through as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it of great size. There we saw the Nephilim. Now we're getting into primal fears here. The Nephilim are these giant characters that show up as the world's falling apart in the early part of Genesis. Whatever they are, they're scary. And they're scary in a way that becomes mythical. To ourselves, we seemed like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. They bring this report, and this report is true. Because one of the questions that Moses tells them to go find out is if the land is good or not. Is the land good or bad? Now, God has said that the land is good. But they're going to go double check. 
And it is. They say, yes, the land is good. The land is plentiful. Look at these grapes. These grapes are amazing. Big grapes are a little bit. I don't know. But there's grapes. But there's this word that shows up. Chapter 13, verse 28. Yet. The word is Ephesus. And this is the word where the narrative turns. This word, uh, it shows up here as a conjunction, yet, but, hold the phone, however. This word also has another translation, which means nothingness or annihilation. These spies are about to annihilate the promise of the future that was given to them with the next bit of this report. They are about to destroy hope in what God has promised. And yet, they start to paint their own picture. There are giants in this land. Okay. Part of what's happening in the story, and one of the word groups that shows up over and over again in chapter 13, is the language of vision, of sight. Now, because we are the way we are, we deeply privilege our sight as the way we understand the world. The Hebrew Bible, particularly Judaism, is a language that is agnostic towards sight or even antagonistic towards sight as a way of understanding the world. Deuteronomy 6 is the central Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Not see the Lord your God is one, but hear the Lord your God is one. Judaism is a, is a religion privileging hearing as a way of understanding that God speaks and we listen. But most of the rest of the world gets their knowledge through sight. And so the spies go out and they look, but they don't comprehend what they're supposed to see well. Jesus says in the Gospels, those who have eyes, let them see, and ears, let them hear, because we can't always trust what we are apprehending, what we are pulling into our senses. And so they see the goodness, they see the fruit, they see the milk and honey, they also see the giants, and they see the fortified cities. Now, sure, there was giants there, okay, and there were fortified cities there. How come those weren't just instances of blessing again? Like, this land is so bountiful that if we move in, we're going to get, we're going to get jacked. How come that wasn't what they said? I want to look like those people. And look how good these cities are built. Like we'll have this kind of, these kinds of resources if we live here. The promise was that this land was for them. And so everything they saw should have just sort of deepened the understanding that these promises were for them. But what if you don't think you deserve good things? What if you've been trained your whole life and this generation, 600,000 strong, has grown up in slavery? They've been in the wilderness for a little bit, but they are still people who are quite accustomed to oppression. What if they don't think they deserve good things? We can't go. There's danger there. There's giants there. And then Caleb says this, Ki yachol nuhal. We are able to overcome. He uses a doubling of this word, strength or ability or perseverance. Yachol nuhal is just a repetition. We can do it. We can do it. 
no doubt. And then they utter this phrase, the other group of spies, in answer to Caleb's rebuttal. Lo, Newhall, we are not able. And there it is. They can't imagine that their future could be good. Whether they deserve it or whether they are strong enough to handle it, whether they have grown up enough at this point, all they can utter is, Lo, Newhall, we are not able. We are not strong enough. We are not faithful enough. We are just slaves from Egypt. This is the speech of a crisis. Then they start to talk about what the land will really do to them. They say, this land devours its inhabitants. This is not a maternal place. It's going to feed us on milk and honey. This isn't like cradling in your mother's arms. This place is a monster. And if we walk in there, we will be in the jaws of that beast. And besides, there are giants there. Not only that, we aren't even people in that space. We are like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And you feel that? The spies come back. And the way that they understand their own identity is deeply contingent on the world around them. How scary is it out there? And depending on how scary is it out there, that is what I am worth in this world. This is the danger of growing up in homes that are abusive, is they become the people who name you, who build up your identity or to tear it down. And at some point you live in that stuff long enough and you will feel like a gnat. The language that Pharaoh uses for the people in Egypt, when they grow, when they flourish, is that they are swarming. It's the language of insects. Of course, that's what they saw themselves as. That's what they were told that they were. Those voices that many of us have lived with, that have named us as less than worthy, good things are not for you. My son, my daughter, my colleague, wherever that space is that is telling you something about who you are, at some point you'll start to believe it. And when you look in the mirror, you will see what they have called you. We were like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And then the fateful turn. And so we seemed to them. How do they know what they looked like to those giants? The way we see ourselves in the world can change the way the world understands us. Again, it's like the person who's grown up in relationship after relationship that is abusive and abusive. When they go to the next relationship, what they offer is, here, I'm, I'm ready to be abused. That is my role in these relationships. Projecting a self-identity onto the world around them such that that actualizes, it becomes reality. We looked like grasshoppers to ourselves and so we were to them as well. 
there's this Midrash. Midrash is like a story that is told on top of the text in Judaism. It's a way of playfully diving deeper into the story. And so there's this Midrash that develops around this speech, this report from the spies, where God comes down and talks to them and, and uh, says, okay, you feel like you're like grasshoppers in your own eyes. You are allowed to feel that way about yourself. But here's what gets me angry, God says. You said that you look like grasshoppers in their eyes. And how do you know what they see? And then God says this line. Who told you you didn't look like angels in their eyes? They have been used to pain and oppression and slavery, lack of freedom in this world. And the fear of the promised land, if it's anything, it is the fear of the unknown. The desire to go back to Egypt is the desire to go back to something predictable, even if it's oppressive, even if it's painful, at least it's understandable. And stepping off into that unknown is an invitation to disruption and to dizziness and something new. And it's understandable that they are scared. This is hard. They are growing up. And there may be only so far that they can grow. We do know that of that 600,000 or so that left Egypt, none of them make it in to the promised land. And we might understand that as a punishment because they don't believe in God's goodness. But it also just might be deep pragmatism that they weren't quite ready yet. Their kids will be ready. The ones who were born in the wilderness, they'll get to go in. And I hope, I like to think that maybe those parents blessed those children and their ability to understand themselves differently than their parents understood themselves. Do you have someone in your life who can only take their own development so far? But they might bless you to take the next step. That is a good person. Who told you you didn't look like angels? Why do you think the future has to be like the past? Something new might be happening. The possibilities in this land are endless. It is fertile. It is bountiful. And abundance is always surprising. I think a lot as I've read this story about the way that Jesus saw himself. Part of what Jesus is doing in his ministry, in his life, in his presence here is showing us what it means to be fully human. One of the titles given to Jesus in the Bible is the son of humanity, the son of man or the human one. What would it look like if one person believed what God sees in us, what God saw in him? I have a friend who uh, shared with us a story this week as we were talking about this text. 
and it stuck with me as well. Um, she's in for a little bit in uh, incarcerated, and when she got out, no longer bound by someone else's schedule or someone else's rules, someone else's timetable or someone else's identity, just now herself again. She said it was so confounding to be free. When I was in jail, there was just two kinds of shampoo to choose from. That was it. I didn't have to figure anything else out. And this world of expansiveness, of possibility, was overwhelming. I want to be empathetic to those spies who couldn't imagine walking into that future. Just like whenever we talk with one another here, I can feel often in you and in me a hesitancy to trust what God has for us and to take the step off into the future. It is easier to just believe in despair and cynicism. That voice from Caleb is terrifying. We are able to overcome. And the echo is that we are not able, is natural. So much so that the punishment is that they don't go into the land. Their kids go in. The promise lives on. God is faithful and God finds a faithful people. But it takes some time for them to grow up. Here's what we see in the New Testament. What does it mean to bear witness to the story of Jesus? As we see Jesus, seeing God, seeing him. We get to look on one human, fully within the gaze of the divine, and finding in that gaze peace and grounding. We get to watch as one of us believes in the promises of God, even the promise of resurrection enough to keep moving forward. There's this part in each of the Gospels, I'll read it to you from Mark's Gospel, when Jesus, at the very beginning, goes to get baptized. And it says that he goes into the water and John gets ready to baptize him. And at this moment, the, the, the clouds break and God looks down and in Mark's version, it said, you are my son, you are my child, I am well pleased. And this marker is what Jesus carries through all of the trials and tribulations, through all of the giants and all of the fortified cities and all of the resistance and all of the death is this one identity marker. That he belongs to God. Later, when Jesus approaches his death, he stands before all of the powers of the world. And they say, who are you? Are you the son of God? And he says, so you've said. Are you the Messiah, the anointed one? I am. Claiming that in that moment is an invitation to step off into the abyss, to look down into the pit and move forward into the unknown. We're going to stay with these spies in this congregation in the wilderness for the next couple of weeks to see what else we can learn from this story. But I want to say 
now as we wrap that growing up is difficult. It will cause a certain amount of stress and strain and anxiety to trust in God's good future. Because God's good future is going to be different than yesterday's pain. And you know yesterday's pain. You've carried it. You've gotten quite familiar with its contours and its smell and its shape. And it has become a companion. God is not interested in you seeing yourself as a grasshopper, as small, as insignificant. God is claiming you always as beloved and belonging child of God. And because of that, you are able. You are able to do the next thing God is calling you to do. We are able to do the next thing God is calling us to do. Yes, there are dragons. Yes, there are giants. Yes, it will be difficult, but we are able. I heard one. Amen. Say it again. Because God has called us to this work in the world. In the face of whatever adversity and friction and tension and stress of dragons or demons or hell or death, we are able to overcome. And all God's people said, let us pray. God, you are so honest with us. In the spaces where we have not yet grown up, you show us unflinchingly who we are and you still love us. You treat us with dignity and believe that we can overcome. So not in our power, not rushing ahead of you, but not falling too far behind. Give us strength to take the next step into the promise of your goodness. For those in this room, God, who do not feel like they deserve good things, we pray an extra blessing. And for those who carry old stories, who've trusted the wrong voices. Give them a new refrain that names them more deeply and truly as your child. Love us back into wholeness and be patient with us as we stutter and we stammer at the gate. In Christ's name, amen.